0: You know, everything Jesus did was an act of getting his feet wet, because everything Jesus did was out of faith. As we walk to the cross with Jesus in this series of messages, and we see as we transition from this um, time where Jesus was teaching his disciples and his followers how to serve, we move to this place where we see him walking out in incredible faith and teaching his followers to walk in that faith. I want you to think for a second. You have one week to live. What three things are must-dos for you? Think about it for a second. You have one week to live. You're writing down on a sheet of paper, knowing you've got a week. What are three must-dos? I've got to do this. It's interesting, when you look at the life of Jesus and we begin to look at this walk to the cross he makes these predictions we've seen three of them because he knew that when he came to this final week he knew this week would be the end he knew it would end sometime around Passover that Thursday he knew things would come to a head and he kept telling his, his disciples to, to know that because he was always planting seeds of faith knowing that things might head south you know God does it in our life if things start to head south but he's always doing things around us to plant seeds of faith What I want us to look at is the last week of Jesus. And here are some of the things that happened in Jesus' last week. If you look at the very first day of the last week, because he goes to the grave on Good Friday. So the Friday before, he comes to Bethany. And in Bethany, he finds Mary and Martha. And Lazarus is dead. He's been told a few days before that Lazarus is very, very ill. But all of a sudden, he takes his time and he comes along and then he finds that Lazarus that dead and that Friday raises him from the dead. So now you start to see the expectations going on within the community of Jerusalem because at this time, people are pouring in from all over the world. Those who are God-fearers, Gentiles, and those who are Jews are coming this pilgrimage for this annual festival, this great rehearsal of the great act of God where he passed over those who put faith in him. So that day occurs, and the next day is a Saturday, which is the Sabbath day. I'm sure that Jesus, as it says in Scripture, as custom would, he would go to the synagogue in that area, or he went into the city, but that day was the day where he worshipped. And then Sunday... I'm hoping as you kind of go through this, you get a framework of what's going on in this last week, because it's helpful to bring out the nuances of the lessons that are going to come. To get this, Sunday is presentation day. We know it often is triumphal entry day. But really what was happening is Jesus enters the city on this donkey, fulfilling the prophecy that he would come gentle as a king, not as a warrior, not to present war. But he presents himself as Messiah as he makes his way down from Bethlehem to the city of Jerusalem. And he rides into Jerusalem. We're told he goes right from that place, gets off that, that donkey and walks to the temple. Mark tells us in his gospel that it was probably late so that Jesus went to the temple, looked around, and then left and went back to Bethany. On the Jewish calendar, this was the tenth day of Nisan. In Nisan 10, that day, that presentation day, was when the pilgrims would go to the temple with their Passover lambs and they would bring them to the priest to be examined. So it's a very interesting day. Jesus is coming in, presenting himself as the Lamb of God. And he comes on this day and he presents himself. They're presenting their lambs. And Jesus walks to the temple and he sees the outer court filled with all kinds of money changers and tables of selling all kinds of offerings and whatever else, and in that place where the Gentiles, these God-fearing Gentiles, and these, the lame and the blind, the only place they could be was in the outer courts. There's no room for them to even meet with God. There's no room to pray. And Mark tells us that Jesus leaves. He goes back to Bethany. And you can see this in verse 17. We read, and he left them and went out to the city of Bethany where they spent the night. And early in the mornings, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. This week of the Passover is filled with people. And so one of the things you have to realize is that Jesus was going into the city and then go back to Bethany, partially because he had good friends that he was staying with. But partially, if you've ever been... I remember one time when we were trying to go to Europe and we were actually making reservations to go to Nice, France, and it was at a time in the spring, and we thought, you know, we'd find a hotel. We tried every hotel. We tried everywhere around there. And for some reason, we couldn't get in. And there was a reason there was no room in the inns there. Because it was the time of the Cannes Film Festival and this little-known race called the Monte Carlo Grand Prix in Monaco. It gives you a little bit of the picture of what's going on, that when Jesus, in the time of taxation, it says that when Mary and Joseph came down, there was no room in the inn when they went to Bethlehem. In the same way, in these huge festivals, there was just not enough places to stay, so Jesus would go in and out. So that's what you see in the Scripture. And then Monday, it tells us it's a purification day, is what I put it. It's a temple cleansing day. You might be having questions because you read Matthew. Matthew combines this story and the story we're going to look at today, the fig tree and the withering of the fig tree, into one. Because as we've been saying, Matthew is more concerned about topics and themes than he is about chronological listing. Mark, if you read Mark, is a much more chronologically put together presentation of what happens this last week. So you see Monday, he goes to the temple. On the way there, he curses the fig tree, cleanses the temple, heals people, goes home, comes back Tuesday, which I call Prove Yourself Day. It was really a day of controversy. It was a time when he was teaching. And in this teaching, he's constantly being badgered by those religious leaders. On the way in that morning of Tuesday, (coughs) Mark tells us that Peter notices that the fig tree is withered. That it is completely withered. And then he goes in, Jesus teaches, Wednesday is preparation day. He doesn't, I believe, go into the city. He rests and and relaxes with his disciples, with his family. This was important to him as he prepared for Thursday, which was Passover day. We know what happens Passover day. He has the Last Supper. He goes to the garden to pray. He's arrested in the garden. He Spends a trial all night. Friday, he is put on the cross. Saturday is the day of despair and silence. And Sunday, resurrection. That just gives you a little bit of a framework. I want us to continue if you look at verse 18 of Matthew. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. Again, we're talking here about these this idea of immediately. Did it happen right in front of their eyes? Or was it the idea that that the progression of it withering happened within that day? Mark seems to indicate that's what's going on. Well, I want you to notice that early in the morning, Jesus is hungry. These guys get up early in the morning. They're making their way to Jerusalem. The Gospel writer Mark comments that it wasn't the time for figs. In fact, they weren't in season. But Jesus, as he's walking along, happens to see among these grove of fig trees, because that's what Bethphage means. It means home of figs. These groves of fig trees. He sees one tree that's in full bloom. And when he looks at this tree, when he sees a tree in full bloom, he expects to see figs on it. That's his expectation. So Matthew writes in verse 19 he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. And you may wonder why would Jesus expect there to be figs on this tree when it's not the season for figs? And here's the point the very reason Jesus went to the fig tree was because it was in bloom. In fact, it had all the outward appearance that there were figs on it. It should have had figs on it. This wasn't, uh, and if you read it, 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 it gives you the and explains the reason why Jesus even went to this particular tree. Because when a tree was in bloom, you would expect to see figs. Now, um, as, you, as you think about that, um, I, I just want to share with you a little bit about figs and, and fig trees, because I'm... Not a horticulturist, but from what I've read. That is, that if there are leaves, there are usually figs right with it or very soon after. So there should have been at least some kind of edible fig on that tree. And so Jesus goes up, and he sees there's no figs, and he stops, and he curses the tree. Basic says, die, tree. You give the outward appearance... But you don't have any fruit. Now, to get this clearly, you, you would have to understand this. It would be as if you were driving, getting up early in the morning. Imagine you're on a trip somewhere. You get up early in the morning, and early in the morning, you get onto the interstate. You're going along the interstate, and you want to get going, and you realize you didn't have coffee. As you're going along, you see this sign flashing, open, coffee, 24-7, exit 10. And you pull off the road. It's one of those exits you have to actually go a couple miles. You go a couple of miles. You come up to that place where there's coffee and it's pitch black you pull up and you see the sign says closed that's what's going on and you under your breath go may you never be open again (laughs) now you know you might get the idea that jesus really ticked how things are going in the morning he got up on the wrong side of the bed maybe he's still angry from the night before when he went into the temple he went into the temple and saw that so he's just in an angry mood He's going to lose his cool possibly in a few more steps down the road as he goes into the temple has a, a temper tantrum. You know, I mean, he kind of, is, he, is Jesus just an angry guy? But this isn't God um, going crazy with anger. This is completely consistent with who he is. This is Jesus taking a moment, getting people's attention, his disciples' attention, in order for them to understand the lesson. Because this lesson is going to follow with another lesson because he's going to go to the temple and he's going to basically do the same thing. Cleanse it and purify it. So Jesus isn't just losing his cool like a kid who's hungry and then gets angry because he doesn't get his way. This is Jesus using what the Father in Heaven has put before him as a lesson to teach his followers. And so as we go through this, I want to share with you some important lessons. A few lessons of what you can understand as you look at this, this whole story of the fig tree withering and the very first one is this jesus uses life to teach jesus was the master of life lessons he is always using what i call teachable moments he's looking for those things i doubt jesus when he saw the tree in full bloom knew there was no figs on it and thought you know hmm, i'll just go over there because i want to teach these guys something about god I think he was in the moment, walking in the spirit, felt hungry, went over to do that. And immediately when he sees there's no fruit, he goes, Father, this is just like Israel, your chosen people. And he's had on his mind what happened as he saw in the temple the day before. And they make, in a sense, in his mind, he's saying to his father, they make an outward show of being connected to you, but inwardly they are about as far away from revealing you through the fruits of their life as this tree is from bearing any fruit. Do you get that, what's going on? So Jesus walks up there. And, and Jesus, remember, in these last few lessons, He's teaching through what I call dramatic actions. He's not saying parables in a verbal way. He's acting in a dramatic way. He's, he's acting out parables so they could actually see it. So that as He comes into the, the um, city of Jerusalem, He's acting out this parable, as he comes into the donkey, as he comes to this tree, he's walking in line with what his father's will as he sees this tree withered and he acts out for them something that later they'll begin to understand. Jesus was a Jew through and through. I mean, he knew the Torah well. Listen to this verse in Deuteronomy chapter six, four through six, because the way that you would teach in that day and age was not so much that you would sit down and do what we're doing here. You would walk and, and, and live with people. And along the way, when, when the lessons would come, you would use that action or whatever happened to teach a person something that would help them grow. So in Deuteronomy chapter four, six, four through six, it says, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. And these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Catch this. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. There is nothing in here about taking a pen and paper and sitting with a whiteboard and teaching. This is, there's nothing in here that says, you know, send your kids to the synagogue Sunday school. Um, make sure that your kids get in some kind of student ministry youth group and, and there that you're going to be taught. In fact, one of the things we're doing right now, we're talking about um, family life ministry, and we're talking about our our, our student ministry and our kids' ministry, looking at it more so, not so much that when you bring your kids here, it's about teaching them, although we're going to do that, but it's about how do we help the family be the ones involved in doing this life lesson teaching. As um, I've heard a couple times, Joel share his own story. And he talks about when he was about seven, he came to a, a decision for Christ. But you know what was the most impactful—the most impactful thing in his life was around 12 years of age. Your dad had this incredible experience with God, and uh, your father's experience with God and his sense of faith filled your heart with a kind of faith that you had never experienced before. I just sit there and I think to myself: dads, moms, grandparents. How many opportunities do you have to begin to share with your kids or your grandkids? In fact, I had a thing happen with my daughter yesterday where she shared a life teaching with me. How many parents are open to your kids teaching you something? It wasn't easy, honestly. But she was right. You can't do that unless you're walking in the presence of God. It's not about worshiping here for a few hours that we come and we sit in a class and get some good teaching. It's about a life that's lived in such a way that the presence of God is with you. Your life becomes worship. Your heart and mind is taken up in a sense. As you work, I, you know, I know, as you work you have to put your mind and your energy, but you, you have met with God. You walk with God. You are in the Spirit so that when you are walking along, there are times that you see things and the Spirit of God, because you're in it, allows for you to see what needs to be said. And instead of some kind of whiteboard kind of lesson where we do in our Western, and culture kind of like a mind up of information thinking that's going to transform people you are in a place where you're walking and as you walk like jesus did you go boy father this tree is just like the israel and what i want my followers here to see right now is something very important and so he stops and he's not angry doing it out of just you know he's had a bad day he's doing it to teach a lesson he wants them to understand and so my greatest lessons have come from what I call those kind of teachable moments. And one of them I remember was in Sunday school. I had a teacher who, I was not an easy kid to teach. I will to this day thank God for that person who showed me kindness and grace that did not hit me till I was in college. And I just say to you who are teaching kids, I say to you parents... You're teaching lessons if you're open to it. That may not hit till later. And that's what happened here. It wasn't until the next morning as they're walking through. I'm going to share with you a second thing. Jesus looks for spiritual fruit. This is, the, this is really the heart of this whole thing. If, if you're checking out Jesus this morning and what it means to walk in the Christian faith, I, I want you to realize this. You may not have known this, but did you know that God hates hypocrites even more than you do? Seriously, Jesus had little time with it. In short, this acted out parable is what this is all about. God has a desire for people to grow. He doesn't not want you just to put on a show. I wrote this down. We are here not to put on a show of faith, but to help others grow in faith. Hear that again. We're not here to put on a show of faith, but to help others grow in faith. What God's looking for is spiritually produced fruit. When he came into this, when he came in and he saw that tree, and when he came and he saw the leaders, and, the, and, the, and I'm not talking—he's not—he's not looking at all Israel here. He's looking at the people who were claiming to be his representatives, those who were specifically in the power structures in the religious system. And as he walks through here, he's showing this. He says, "I don't care all the activity. I don't care all the serving. I don't care how much money. I don't care all the different things that you can do. What I'm really concerned about is who you are." And what he's really concerned about is is not how much we show and people see externally, but how much you grow and you help others grow. Things like, are you more loving today than you were a few years ago? Those are really good questions to ask. Those are fruit-bearing kind of questions. Are you expressing more joy consistently now in your 40s than maybe you were in your 30s? Are you more patient and kinder after having... Attended and following Christ in a church setting now more so than you were 20 years ago. God hates to show. Jesus is making this point and willing to let some time go by before they get it. Because in a few miles, He would actually walk into the temple literally cursed through His anger those making a show of their faith, having no real substance of love as they watched the broken, diseased, and marginalized stand outside the outer court, not being able to come into the presence, even this aspect of the presence, they didn't even get to go closer, but there was something about the presence of God in the outer court, and they couldn't even go there. He was upset of, on those who were in the way of people wanting to get to God. And not only did keep people from God, they didn't lift a finger, says Jesus at one point, we'll see later, to come to their aid. Which is why I think we have such a responsibility of a church to be involved with the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable who stand outside hungry for God. what we 're called to do in this vision as a church is to impact the world that 's one of our key values it 's to encounter God it 's to grow in community, but it 's to impact the world It, it will be to our detriment, if we would come at some point in the end and, and God would say, um, you had a lot of great church services, you did some singing, you um, did some good teaching, well, you were a real Bible-leaving church, but you know what? The proof of it is what we do to those outside. The proof of it is what we see so often, I think, in our church, some really good things, what we're doing at Maple Hill Estates. I just say, praise God for that. For people going to Peru and going to Mongolia, for our Hammers of Hope ministry, for our caring fund that you give to Freedom House. Source ministry people have been involved in, prison ministries, mentoring people with Teen Challenge, New Life Family Services. I could go on. And God says, Your heart shown in those ways where you are growing. And let me just say this again it's not about you just going out and serving, it's about are you growing? Because it's in your growth that there becomes this kind of transfer to others. And Jesus isn't condemning the nation Israel here. He's not condemning the people because um, he, he has these children who are singing out praises. He's not condemning these children. He's got people who he's just healed who are broken and blind and deaf. He's not condemning them. He has a bunch of followers around him. He doesn't turn around and condemn them. He's condemning this. He's condemning the religious system that promotes the kind of show that is not about the heart. He's coming against what I call the spiritually abusive power structures that so easily grow up in our own hearts when we become familiar with god and what i think is interesting here and you just have to note this that when god begins to judge he always begins with the family first so um beware it's just the way god works when he wants to get to people's hearts he goes where the very first what is he He goes to the temple his home First Peter chapter four verse seven says, "For it is a time for judgment to begin, what with the family of God, and it begins with us." And he goes on to say it begins then and moves to others. One verse of scripture at one point in my life that really had a um, grip me was Malachi chapter three one through six. It was a time in my life when I was just saying, "God, I want to know you more. I want to grow." And God was doing these things in my life, and I felt things somewhat barren in some ways in my life, and I was coming before Him. And I was praying for spirit to come and to, to move and, and to be involved in the church that I was pastoring. And as I was praying, um, I can't give you all the details, but it was incredible way God led me to Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And I knew he was speaking to me. And I started to read it and I got really excited. Because it goes, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. I'm going, God, you're sending your spirit. How cool. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who, and this just took me the wind out of my whole sails, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when He appears? For He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will be set as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and righteousness as offerings acceptable to the Lord. Do you see what Jesus was doing? He's coming in here and He's saying, guess what to the nation of Israel? God wants a group of people who want to serve Him. But before He can do anything big... Before he can move in the way he wants to move, he has to purify a group of people who want to move with him. So it always happens. He's got to get a group of people who will believe and trust and have the faith that begins to develop, who have these hearts that want to grow, that really want to produce the fruits of the Spirit, that want to move into ministry. Not for the sake of show, but in order to help others grow. And as you move into this place, here you have Jesus coming to this place saying to these guys, guess what? There's going to be first the trial. There's going to be the difficulty. Who can endure when the Spirit of God comes? Before the Spirit of God comes in blessing, He comes to cleanse. I think in many ways that's what God's doing in the church all around the United States. There are lots of churches that are going through all kinds of different turmoil and difficulty. And I remember I was reading this. It was as if God said to me. He, said, he gave me this picture when I was reading this. He said, Kevin, can you imagine if you had guests over for dinner? And they come a little bit early. You don't have the table fully set. And you have them sit down at their places to be seated. And as you're talking with them, you kind of pull out of the dishwasher a bunch of plates that have kind of crusted stuff on them. And you put them down at their place of setting. And they're looking at your... Forks and plates. Some of you eat at restaurants that do that, right? No. And he kind of said to me, Kevin, there's a work I have to do in you. I want to serve my grace through your life. And it doesn't mean you become perfect. It just means you come to a place of, 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 of your spirit being pliable to his spirit. And he's able to move. And what he says, I want to serve my grace to those who I deeply love in hearts of purity. And so God says, I'm looking for fruit. And like the leafy tree, those Jesus finds full of advertised piety without any fruit, beware. And so I just ask you, are you bearing fruit or merely leaves? a really important question to ask are you bearing fruit and really leaves here's another thing that i think is so incredible about this passage is that jesus reveals a father full of compassion he not only teaches in the moment and and he lives these teaching moments and not only does he come and he looks for people who are not just showing but they're actually bearing fruit but jesus reveals through this the, the, the incredible compassion of god You know, the punitive actions of Jesus that we find throughout Scripture never come across people. You think that's interesting, isn't it? Here's God in flesh showing up, and you would think God in flesh would have the right to actually, in some cases, go zap. I mean, it would be really easy to think about it. You could see Jesus going along, and here's a guy who is just, his heart's really a mess. He's this, and he'd just go, you know what, this guy, zap. Zap. There's not one that you can see throughout Scripture, the punitive acts of God through Jesus that come at that time. There's no judgment that comes through Jesus through his ministry. Think about it. It shows this incredible heart of compassion. The fact that God's power is not unleashed against people should tell us something about the incredible compassion of God through Jesus. Now, he does do these actions that show that judgment will come. He, he at one point releases a legion of demons from this guy who these things go into these pigs and the pigs all go running over the hill and there's a visual, just a visual picture of, of evil and what happens when evil is located in, you know, physical beings. They saw that lesson loud and clear. He he comes here and he stands before a tree, this tree that was showing and advertising fruit. And what he does to it is he says, may you not bear fruit again. May you, you may, may you wither. And he walks away. And what you find is the next day as they're walking along, Peter sees it. And he, he goes, wow, there's no, no, there's no, uh, there's no fruit on this tree. But in fact, it's actually withered. And you see this work in this warning of Jesus, because the truth is there will come a day of judgment. But in this time, God doesn't come to judge. He comes to discipline. He comes to actually turn our hearts towards him because of his deep compassion. You ever noticed how quickly we rush to judgment? I do. You ever notice that how much more quickly you do that than God does? It should cause you to stop and pause. I just look at this passage of Scripture and I'm reminded again and again that when Jesus came, he's come to you today and you may be in this place where you feel like, man, I, God, um, the things that are happening, you're punishing me, God, you must really not like me. You know what? That's not God. God comes to you in order to get your attention. And maybe the circumstances, the choices you've made where he's saying, I love you so much, I want to be involved in your life. And Jesus does not stand over you with a stone to condemn you. He comes to you right now. He sees your heart. He sees exactly where you're at. He knows the sin in your life. He knows your brokenness. He knows where you're blind. He knows where you're lame. And all he's looking for is someone to say, I repent and I just ask that you would just enter in and begin to walk with me, Jesus. And he just is thrilled to do that. And then there's a third and fourth thing that I think is important here. Because this is kind of how the whole thing closes. If you notice how Matthew closes his story. What you have to understand is that Matthew, again, condenses these two stories. But here, in, in what's really going on, you continue to see what Mark has to say. Mark states that in early in the morning. So they've gone out the first day. The tree has been cursed. They go into the temple. Jesus cleanses it. They go back home that night. It may have been dark, so they couldn't see the fig grow of the trees there. They go back home. They get up early the next day, so they're walking the next day on Tuesday as they're walking. Peter, it says, and, and Mark notices this, and he goes, "Look, Rabbi." The tree you cursed is withered. And now Matthew, if you look at Matthew, he merely states that after, I think, Peter drew everyone's attention to it. You can look at his statement in Matthew, verse 20. After he draws everyone's attention to it, the disciples go, whoa, yeah, you're right, Peter. Man, did that ever wither quickly. Listen to it. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And Jesus responds with what I call one of those pay attention moments. It's one of those times where, you know, if you were in a classroom, because his classroom was all his life, like we said, it's one of those times where he goes, guys, you need to take notes now, because this will be on the final exam. Right? And it's those words that you'll find in the NIV that will you'll you'll see, I tell you the truth. Or if you're from the King James Version, remember that's verily, verily, I say to you, Listen to what Jesus says. He goes on in verse 21 and he says, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Doesn't that kind of, you know, when I read that, I go, Ah, oh, yeah. Oh, man, Jesus. That's a huge promise. What do you make of that? What do you, what do you make of the water-walking kind of faith? And that's for the Pentecostals, Charismatics, and the rest. And that's for the name-it-claim-it people. I really want you to think about it. What does this passage of Scripture actually saying? Literally. So, again, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only what you... Not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will see whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, I want to share with you, I'm not a name it, claim it kind of person. I don't believe that. The figure of the mountain being cast into the sea was a common idiom in Jesus's teaching. In fact, if you just go back to chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus says this at one point. Because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, see where he says it again, move from here to there, and it will move. Here's some words that are a little stretching. Nothing will be impossible for you. So what do you do with that? I, in this second, in this one, I just read from chapter 17. Jesus is pointing out here the size of faith being small. But in this one, he's really teaching about the fact that faith—just pure faith—you can either doubt, have no faith, or you can have faith. Faith is essential. Without faith, no one pleases God. So, what is your faith in? What does it mean for you to have this kind of faith? How does this work in your life? How does it operate? I love what the New Testament scholar Don Carson says. He He was actually my teacher at Trinity, and just a bright guy. Um, He must write a book a day. Um, I don't know how he does it. But he says, Jesus uses this parable to teach the power of believing prayer. But belief in the New Testament is never reduced to forcing oneself to believe what he does not really believe. Did you catch that? Jesus uses this parable to teach... The power of believing prayer. But belief in the New Testament is never reduced to forcing oneself to believe what he does not really believe. Instead, it is related to genuine trust in God and obedience to and discernment of His will. That's an interesting statement coming from a very conservative New Testament scholar. But what he's saying is this. There are times that God operates and and He gives you a promise or He speaks to your heart or you see in His Word. Those those, uh, those uh, uh, followers of Moses, as they came to the uh, promised land, the twelve spies going into the land, they are told before they go that this land is theirs. You can believe this. They go in and what do they do? They have no faith. They are in doubt and they go and they wander for 40 years. There's something about believing what God tells you. That when he says you're forgiven, you are forgiven, even though you blew it big the night before. There is something true about the fact that God says that if you invite Him into your life and you begin to follow Him and and begin to nurture the presence of God in your heart, He will complete in you what He's promised. There's something about the truth of the fact that when God comes to you and He actually you know in your heart as through prayer that He said, I'm going to bring this healing, then you stand on that promise. It's not you're trying to make yourself believe something you don't. It's because God spoke and you've discerned His will as He says. God is all about building your faith to follow Him to fulfill what He has promised in you. You could write that down and live with that truth. God is all about building your faith to follow Him to fulfill what He has promised you. If God in His Word says He will save you, believe it. If God in prayer spoke to your heart, believe it. If God has given you a promise, hold on to it with all your heart. And the question comes down to do you believe that God will do what He says? Again, Don Carson, New Testament scholar, says Jesus points out to them that in the supernatural world ordinarily time, ordinary time processes are often irrelevant. Isn't that helpful to know around things like disease? In consequence, the praying disciple with the supernatural power of faith can achieve with the apparent suddenness the results which apart from faith and prayer would be wholly out of reach. I don't know why God doesn't heal, but I know he says at times that he does. And there are times God calls us to believe in things that are hard to believe, but when we know in our soul and our heart this is what He's calling us to do, you step out in faith. I'm going to close with this story because it was kind of just a recent one. I asked um, Kurt and Andrea Boots if they would allow for me to share this. They write, My wife Andrea and I are expecting our second little boy at the end of March. In November we had the standard ultrasound at 20 weeks to make sure everything looked good with the baby. The next day we received a phone call from our doctor that there was a concern with the ultrasound and they wanted to do a level two ultrasound to get a closer look. There appeared to be an obstruction of the baby's intestines on the first ultrasound. We immediately started Googling medical information on what this could mean. And we were frightened to see of all the different abnormalities and issues that can come along with intestinal obstruction, which is one of the reasons Googling medical stuff isn't really great, right? But I would be on that Google and I think you would too. Two days later, we were meeting with the perinatologist to do our first of many level two ultrasounds. Our fears were confirmed that our baby had an obstruction in the large intestine. Doctor could see the blockage and shared about a whole bunch of other stuff. All, all of the major organs, though, um, are to be fully connected. Catch this by 10 weeks gestational age, all the fully, all the organs are supposed to be connected. Theirs wasn't. What they had seen as this obstruction and that things were not connected. The only way to fix the issue would be for the baby to have surgery right after birth and then potentially another surgery before being one years of age. We were heartbroken, and we couldn't bear the thought of our little boy undergoing major surgery when he's only one to two days old. A number of other tests were set up. In December, we had another ultrasound and a fetal echocardiogram within the same week, and it was one of the most stressful weeks of our lives. The heart looked good, thankfully, but the ultrasound confirmed that the obstruction was still present. The doctor could see the obstruction as well as some swelling and fluid buildup in the intestine. In late December, we had another ultrasound, and the swelling and the fluid buildup were still present, but the baby was stable and growing and well, and we were thankful. After emailing Pastor Kevin in early January about our situation, Pastor Kevin mentioned the idea of praying and anointing with oil for healing. Um, God had put in their hearts to want to do this. He had given him faith to inquire about this. So I shared with him James chapter 5. They read that. We had given our circumstances to the Lord multiple times throughout the last couple of months and prayed for God's will with our child. The fusion group here, one of the adult classes at YZ Free, had been praying along with us as well as Beth Moorhead and others on the prayer team. And we prayed about what we read in Scripture and both felt that God was calling us to meet with the pastors and elders and to pray for healing. On Sunday, January 29th, we met with Beth Moorhead and a group of others who prayed with us, and we were anointed with oil and prayed over our little baby. We could feel the power of God's presence as we lifted this child up to him and asked for his healing. And the next day, we went in for another ultrasound, and the ultrasound report would be sent to the pediatric surgeon at Children's Hospital as well to the NICU doctor who would be caring for our baby after the surgery. And we were scheduled to meet with them two days after this ultrasound to discuss all the details of what we were going to be doing in the next month or so. And the baby was in perfect condition during this ultrasound, and the doctor could see all the organs clearly. and to our amazement, the large intestine looked completely normal. <laughs> the doctor was dumbfounded, and he could offer no explanation to us, and they looked over everything multiple times, trying to find this. We had tears of joy as we realized the miracle that was happening before our eyes and in the last 2 weeks we've had opportunity to share God's miracle with many people our family friends coworkers and even a few random strangers God has strengthened our relationship with him has strengthened our marriage and has provided a testament to prayer and to healing that we openly share with others and I share this because you know what Part of what God is seeking to do is to call us to live with him. We don't know the outcomes that he will allow in our life, but he does say the prayer of faith can heal. And so we step into those places when God calls us to do so. And those prayers of faith have ways of building our faith. If we are open as a body to say, God, we truly believe that you are the kind of God that makes it really clear that without faith it's impossible to please you. And we're not going to put our hands around what that looks like, but we're going to walk into the water and say, God, lift us in your hands and teach us what it means. Teach each one of us what it means to walk that kind of faith out with that kind of heart cry that says, Lord, we need you. Let's close in a time of worship.